Please turn together with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We're merely going to read the last verse in the chapter, but to set it in its context, the Apostle Paul is addressing the church in Ephesus as to the vital truth and need and purpose of Jehovah regarding the church as the place in which God in His Son is glorified in this present world. In chapter 3, at the conclusion, he has underscored for us that it is in the church that God will receive glory in Christ Jesus unto all the ages. And then he proceeds to give directives to the church accompanying the glory of God in her. And certainly no church that is not prepared and active in fulfilling and living out these directives is going to be a church in which God is greatly glorified. And no professing Christian who is not committed to these directives and practicing them in his life, is going to be a part of the glorifying of Christ in his life or in the church. He has come to verse 25 of chapter 4, in which he says, uses that word wherefore, that uh, connective, hailing back to what he said regarding the unity of the church, the preservation of the church from every wind of doctrine and the vital necessity of every member of the church doing his diligence to maintain the unity of the body and the bond of peace. And he gives these various ethical and moral directives to all of God's people regarding the use of the tongue in speaking truth, the use of the temperament in refraining from sinful anger and never letting the sun go down on our wrath in the use of the hands uh, speaking to those who did not work for a living or who did not meet their own needs biblically but stole and used others to meet their needs unbiblically that they are no longer to do such stealing but to labor with their hands so that they may not just have barely enough to get by but even enough to give to others who have a need. So coming from the perspective of taking to the perspective of giving and being benevolent. And then in the midst of this, there are two statements made that are, that are striking. Verse 27 says, neither give place to the devil. In the midst of all of these directives, the danger is that if we do not heed them and obey them, the devil will get a foot Moreover, perhaps his whole self in the door. And once he's in, it's much more difficult to get rid of him than it was to keep him out in the beginning. Give no place to the devil in the way you use your mouth, in the way you use your hands, in the way you conduct the affairs of your heart. And then in verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit in whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. Don't give a place to the devil. Don't grieve the Spirit. Those two 
serious and striking warnings to the church regarding the way we use our mouth, our hands, and our hearts. And then in verse 31, in the same context, so as to avoid giving a place to the devil, to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit and having his presence to depart, we must get rid of all bitterness, wrath, and anger, clamor, um, agitation, railing, using our tongues to harp on evil, put away from you all malice, and verse 32, our text for today, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ forgave you. Again, bow with me as we seek the Lord's help in our preaching and in our hearing of his word. O Lord, now give liberty of heart and tongue and boldness of utterance that I may speak as I ought to speak and they may hear as they ought to hear. Send your spirit, O God of grace, not rewarding us according to our iniquities, for if you keep account of our sins, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And you are gracious to those that call upon you, who walk uprightly, who fear your name, and who come in Jesus' name. Lord, help us now hear the prayer of your child and servant, and answer us quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A sure sign that a person has been converted by Jesus Christ and has become a Christian is a new attitude toward those who wrong him. Sinners do not forgive. Saints do. One of the characteristics of this generation of unbelievers in which we live is listed in Romans chapter 1, verse 31, when in a long list of descriptive sins typical of the age, the apostle includes unmerciful. One of the characteristics of our time is the absence of mercy, an unmerciful generation. They live by one rule. If you want it, You've got to pay for it. You wrong me, I wrong you. Get it while the getting's good. Don't let the other guy get a leg up. It's dog eat dog. Do unto others as they have done unto you. They may have compassion on some people at some time. They may show concern or kindness in some situations. They may donate to charity. They may give to the poor. But according to the Bible, it is possible to give all our goods to feed the poor yet have not love. And one thing they seldom, if ever do, they do not cancel from the heart the debts that others incur by wronging them. They do not forgive and forget 
They remember sins. They recall wrongs. They carry bitterness and resentment around with them. They welcome Bible texts like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they gladly quote it, as did the Pharisees in Jesus' day, taking it out of its context and applying it not to the government's mandate to punish evildoers, but to the individual's right to take vengeance on the one that slaps him on the cheek or forces him to carry a soldier's pack for a mile or what have you. Vengeance often is their driving motivation. They are unmerciful. Have you ever received the brunt of their attitude? Have you ever made a mistake at the job and sought to apologize, ask for for forgiveness, and had them purse the lip, stiffen the back, wrinkle the brow, and refuse you? Have you ever known what it was like to seek reconciliation with an offended person and not be allowed to be given it? Have you ever felt the pain of attempting to put things right and a person refusing to hear? You live in that kind of world, an unmerciful world. But the righteous are not so. They sometimes are capable of anger, bitterness, and resentment. They're able to lose their tempers at times. The righteous struggle with feelings of vengeance and can carry grudges for a time. But at the root of their beings, they possess a principle of Christ-likeness that confounds the world, silences their critics, and conquers their enemies. They have a forgiving spirit. A Christian cannot live out his life as an unforgiving person. It's impossible. If you are a Christian, you are by definition a forgiver. If you are a grudge bearer, you are not a Christian. If you retain habitually in your heart the wrongs that others have done to you, if you recall them as a way of life when you need them to use against them, you are not a Christian. Not if you ever do that, but if as a pattern of your life, if it's something you're comfortable with, if it's your tendency and habit, you're not saved. You're on the road to the coming wrath of God. You're headed for hell. The message today is to two types of people. First, to Christians. Simply to tell you your duty, biblically, to forgive those who wrong you, who sin against you. To be forgiving. Second, to you who are not Christians. Whether you know it or not, part of my purpose is to expose the fact that you're not a Christian. I want to show you that because you have this unchristlike attitude of resentment and bitterness and unmercifulness, because you are not one who by nature forgives sin and gladly does so, you're not a Christian. And I want to point you to the fountain that's been opened for sin and uncleanness so you may find forgiveness yourself and be made into a person that loves to grant forgiveness against sinners. Now the text we read... Verse 32 of Ephesians 4 is couched in beautiful language, 
Be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. The directive, the command, the imperative in this text is be you kind one to another. But it is accompanied by a participle, forgiving. A present participle, forgiving one another. Now, there are three words most often used in the New Testament translated to forgive or to be forgiving or forgiveness. And they are these. The first one is afiemi. It's a word that's translated in various ways. It may mean to allow, to suffer something, to leave, to let, to omit, to forsake, to let be, to yield up, to wipe off. To send away, to lay aside, even to cry, to let alone, to put away, or to remit, or forgive. It is translated forgive approximately 18 times in the New Testament. It's the most used word for this word we translate forgive. Afiemi. Another word that's used, and I believe only once, translated forgive, is the word apoluo. It also means something like to put away, send away. It's also the word used for divorce, when you put away your wife or your husband legally. To loose, to release, to let depart, to let go, to dismiss as an assembly, or as the persecutors of the apostles dismissed them and sent them back to their company. To set at liberty, to depart. To acquit of a crime and to release from the consequences of the crime. To release a debtor from his debt or to forgive. And the time in which it's translated forgive is in the sixth chapter of Luke, verse 37, related to our forgiving others their trespasses against us and God's forgiving us those against him. But in the text which we read, the word translated forgiving is a different word from these two. It's a beautiful word that is drawn from the root word grace or graciousness. And the word is a participle from the verb karitsomai. Now you who are visiting, you think, is he trying to impress us with his knowledge of the Greek? No, I'm trying to teach you that different words are used, translated the same way, which have different aspects of meaning which are important if we're to understand God's word. And the Apostle Paul loves to use this word. He doesn't use it exclusively, but I think the majority of his usage of the terms that we translate forgive, this is the word he uses. It means to give, to grant, to deliver, freely to give, generously to grant, gratuitously to give. And it means forgive. And I want to show you some of the texts, just two others, that this word is used to mean forgive. First, turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 42 and 43. Now, this is our introductory part of the sermon in which we want to give you the background and describe and define this word forgiving. What are we being told we must do one to another when we're told to be forgiving? In Luke chapter 7, verse 42, 
Well, we'll start with verse 41. Our Lord tells a story, as he often does, to illustrate a truth. He says, a certain lender had two debtors. The one owed 500 shillings. Uh, a shilling was about uh, eight pence half penny, I read in the margin. About 17 cents in the day in which this translation was made. Might represent a little more than that after inflation is set in now, but not much money. He owed him 500 shillings. And the other owed 50. Nothing. A drop in the bucket. Now, both of these men, 500 shillings would be several days' wages, but 50 would be various nothing. When they had not wherewith to pay, they were not able to pay the debt, he forgave them both. In other words, he canceled both debts. Which of them, therefore, will love him most? And you know the rest of the story. This Pharisee answers rightly. The one to whom he forgave the most will love him the most. Logical. The Lord is using the story to teach a principle. Two men had debts, one tiny, minuscule, one not huge, but big, much bigger than the first, and a good chunk for his salary, and the creditor forgave both, canceled the debt, liquidated it, didn't require it of them. And one of them is going to love that creditor more than the other one, and it's going to be the one that was forgiven the most. Because this Pharisee was resentful, you remember, of Jesus accepting the adoration of this woman of the streets. And in himself, he was reasoning, if he knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't allow her to touch him or to get near him. And she was doting on him quite a bit. And if you read the text and the imagery there, it's almost an embarrassment. She's just beside herself in love for Christ. And the Lord explaining why she's doing this and why he's allowing it, yea, encouraging it, teaches this parable about forgiveness. And he says, the reason this woman is almost beside herself in gratitude and love for me is because she's been forgiven much. The language says she loves much or she's forgiven much for she loved much. But the point he's making is the evidence of her great forgiveness is in her love. What she's showing is that she's had a lot of sin to be forgiven. You don't love me much because you don't think you've been forgiven much. You don't believe you need to be forgiven much. So there's no gratitude in you. You have no sense of heartfelt beside yourselfness in my presence because you think of yourself as in no need of forgiveness. But a person that knows what it means to have been forgiven knows what it means to love. And a person that knows what it means to love knows what it means to forgive. That word charisma is used. <coughs> and then another passage in Colossians Chapter 2, the same word is used. <coughs> Excuse this little cough. Verse 13 of Colossians 2. Speaking of <clears throat> us when we were dead in our trespasses, unable to do anything about our, our condition... And our relationship to God and our sins. Verse 13 of Colossians 2 says, You being dead through your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you, I say, did he make alive together with him, speaking of Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. In this text, 
This word rooted in charizomai refers to the Lord canceling our sins, forgiving us our sins that we had against us for Christ's sake. Forgiveness of sin. Now, let us define then what this word means when the apostle uses it and says, be forgiving one to another. John Eady has described it this way. Instead of resentment and retaliation, railing and vindictiveness, there is to be reciprocal generosity one to another. Not exaggerating or keeping account of wrongs, but covering them from view by throwing over them the mantle of universal charity. Not welcoming it when a brother does something wrong and taking, jotting it down the back of your minds for future reference. Making a collection of them so that when you finally do land on him, you have a, an argument you can support. But covering it with a mantle of universal charity, that's the spirit about which we read. The duty of every Christian is this, to develop and to maintain a principled and genuine disposition of generous, gratuitous forgiveness to all men, especially to God's people. To develop and to maintain a principled and genuine disposition of generous, gratuitous forgiveness to all men, especially to God's people. The text itself makes it clear that this is a disposition. Be ye kind, tender-hearted. Be ye kind. That word means a generous, gratuitous, forbearing, forgiving disposition. Be ye kind. Not just tolerant, but aggressively generous. Commandment. Be ye that way. Putting up with their weaknesses, yes. Their mistakes, their stumblings, their irritabilities, their irritations. And remitting and canceling their sins against you. Aren't there those in every church? I say this with tongue in my cheek. To all of you who have never done this. Aren't there those who bother us and bug us in the churches? Those other ones that aren't as mature and spiritually powerful as we. If you think yourself to be among the stronger of the brethren. Among the ones who are putting up with some other lesser spiritual ones, let it be known that the commandment here is especially to you to be ye kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. Not just irritatedly putting up with them, but gratuitous, gratuitously, generously being kind to them. That's the spirit of the text. That's the duty. But let's break down this whole thing by analyzing this business of forgiveness. Now, there are two parts to the text. You forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
The second part I hope to open up briefly tonight as we have our meditation around the Lord's table. This morning I concentrate on the first, the horizontal. Forgiving one another. Having a disposition that readily forgives my neighbor when he sins against me. Let's analyze it. First of all, note with me the root of this disposition. The root of a forgiving spirit is seen in the phrase of the heart. Tender-hearted is the way you're put together if you're a Christian. Dear brethren, hear me. I cannot bring myself to be sure or convinced or even to believe that a man or a woman is a believer in Christ who has been changed by Christ's power as a Christian if there's no tender-heartedness. I can't believe it. I didn't say that your tender-heartedness violates all the other texts and all the other examples of other character traits. Sometimes you must be hard. Sometimes you must be firm. Sometimes you must be biblically angry. There is a place for sternness in the Christian life. And if you don't know how to develop proper biblical sternness, there will be an imbalance in your life and you'll leave gaps in people's ministries and lives. But you better be operating from a generic disposition of tenderheartedness. This doesn't just mean when you have to grant forgiveness. This means from a root disposition of the heart. It flows from a natural principle within you. It's real. It doesn't smell like you didn't quite forgive me. You said I'm forgiven, but there was something on your face and in your tone that didn't sound generous. You almost begrudged the fact you had to. This text boxed you in. You wouldn't have done it if you hadn't read it. But you will. All right, I'll forgive Now, I'm forgiving you because God told me to. It's like a husband saying, I love you because I'm commanded to. How does that make you feel, dear? That build up your inner sense of strength and confidence? I love you. The Lord commanded it. Brethren, that is the truth. You better love her because you're commanded. Don't tell her that. And don't say, well, it's in the Bible, so I'll submit to you. Submission is a matter of the heart, not just of the upper lip. It's not, I'm sitting down with my body, but I'm standing up with my heart. It's from the heart. It's unfeigned. Unfeigned love of the brethren. It's unpretentious. That is why that it is evidence of the new birth. Forgiveness doesn't come from a born-again heart bitterly, resentfully, because of legal fears that if I don't, then God will get me. It doesn't come because I'm under stress, but because I'm glad and freely ready to dispose myself to be forgiven. I'm glad for the occasion of forgiveness. I welcome the opportunity to forbear a brother, to forgive a brother. It's a wonderful opportunity for me to be Christ-like. What we're speaking of is biblical large-heartedness. Biblical large-heartedness. Dear brethren, it is not speaking of keeping a relationship one with another that says, All right, I'll forgive 
at a certain level if you earn it and respond properly. I'm willing to, but don't think it's going to come easily to me. That's the opposite of what he's saying. It means that you are operating from a general, continual perspective that longs to forgive is ready to forgive and welcomes the opportunity to forgive and does not want to carry anything in your mind negative about a brother. And it doesn't take him very long to get forgiveness out of you. He opens his mouth and you're ready to help him apologize. Remember the prodigal son's father? Yet a great way off, runs and meets him with his arms open and receives him before the kid could even get his whole confession out almost. He's being set up as a royal prince. Biblical large-heartedness. And I have to confess, just thinking about this, reminding me how difficult it is to teach this. It's like trying to teach somebody to be like Michael Jordan in playing basketball. You just don't teach some of the things he does. You either got it or you don't. And I tell you, if you've been born again, you got this. And if you don't got it, you ain't been born again. It comes from a root principle that Christ infallibly puts into every heart that he saves. A disposition of generous forgiveness. You say, well, if that's the case, Pastor, how come we had to be commanded by the apostle to do it? Well, why would you need to be commanded anything if the new birth guaranteed constant obedience to all of it? Why ever preach the Ten Commandments to Christians? Christians sin at this point. Christians forget this. And some people who think they're Christians but don't possess this deceive themselves unless they're reminded that this is a part and parcel not only of the Christian's duty but of the Christian's habit and nature. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. An interesting passage in, among several in which the Apostle Paul Addresses this very beloved church. Amongst whom he was persecuted by some of his countrymen, the Jews, because he was preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Chased out of town to Berea. But he's commending them over and over again in this epistle. Because he remembers how they returned to God from their idols to serve a living God and to wait for his son from heaven. And in verse 9 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, But concerning love of the brethren... You have no need that one write to you. You already know all about that. You, you people understand the love of the brethren. You don't need anybody to write to you. For you yourselves are, note this, taught of God to love one another. You remember the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31? When it said... A new covenant will I make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers, which covenant they break. But a new covenant, I'll write my law upon their hearts. Remember? And then he says, they shall not every man teach his neighbor, saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Another text in the Old Testament. They shall all be taught of God. What are those things referring to? The nature of the new covenant central blessing of regeneration in which God so moves upon his people in those latter days that the characteristic of the church is going to be a new heart in which everyone who has that heart 
knows God and is taught of God. And the apostle is thinking of that, no doubt, when he says, you are all taught of God to love one another. You don't need a man to tell you because it's written on the roots of your heart. It comes second nature to a believer to love the brethren. You can't help it. That's why you feel so rotten when you don't. That's why when you violate that principle Christ has written under your heart, you can't get away from it. It nags your conscience. That's why you sometimes actually accelerate your blaming of the brethren because your conscience is bugging you so bad because you're not forgiving and loving. You're trying to prove all the more you have an excuse for your attitude. Christians are capable of pretty rotten stuff for a time. But they're not capable of leaving this principle written on the heart. They don't operate on the basis of mere sheer justice. They operate on the basis of mercy. They think mercifully. How could they help it? They exist from mercy. You were not a people, but now are the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. You wouldn't be a people if it weren't for mercy. You can't get far away from thinking about that. It's from the heart. But let's turn back to Matthew 18 for another striking picture. As our Lord instructs us as to this principle. Matthew 18 Verse 35, and he has been speaking of the, in answer to Peter's question, how often will somebody forgive, uh, wrong me, sin against me, and I have to forgive him. Peter is so good to voice our concerns for us. Lord, uh, tell me the limits. You catch the legalism in that question? How, how, often, how many times do I have to forgive? I'm willing to forgive. I'd like to know, though, when I can quit forgiving. Tell me when I can say, the Lord said, go this far, no further. How far? And the Lord is answering his question. And he's told him already what it means. And then in the last verse of this exposition, in verse 35, the Lord Jesus says, So shall also my heavenly Father do unto you, if you forgive not everyone his brother from your hearts. The Lord never allows our Simon Peter questions of limitations on the rules externally to be that last word on the subject. He refuses to allow Peter to rope him into a 37 times and then you're free from forgiveness. From the hearts. That's the root. But the second thing I want you to notice is not only is the root of the heart. But look at the nature of this forgiveness with me. The nature of it. First, it's free. When you forgive your brother his sin against you, it's free. That means he doesn't deserve the forgiveness. You're not forgiving him because he's made it up to you. You've not forgiven him because he's promised that he will make it up to you. You're not forgiving him because he even is able to make it up to you. He can't pay his debt. He's wronged you. It's too late. Uh, he hurt you. He can't unhurt you. He's damaged you. You forgive him freely. This assumes real indebtedness. He really owes you. He can't pay you. You forgive him freely. He really hurt you. 
And note, it matters not how severely he hurt you, how much he stole from you, how badly he treated you. That is never the issue. Because it's free forgiveness. It's totally free. Brethren, if it's free for the least thing, it's the same freely given thing for the greatest. If you compare between the little sins and the big sins and say, well, I'll forgive the little ones, but not the big ones, you've missed the point. On what ground do you forgive the little one? It's free, undeserved. That liberates you to forgive anything. Do you not like that? Though we're not, not going to emphasize it till tonight, don't forget the second part of that clause. As God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. You only want to be forgiven of the little ones? Most of us in this place have been longingly looking for somebody to forgive us of the big ones. And I have to tell you, it's both and. It's not just the big ones you need forgiveness for. It's the little ones too. One breaking of one law of God's holy, perfect law damns you forever. Unless God intervenes in mercy. You go to hell for little sins as much as for big ones. You don't get free like this. And see, that's what the world doesn't understand. They think of sinners in degrees. Well, there is a a concept in the Bible of degrees of punishment. And there are rewards that vary. However, God doesn't forgive on the basis of the degree of the wrong. He forgives freely. It matters not how big and how little. Because it's not rooted in the size. It's rooted in the nature of the forgiver. Free. The nature of this forgiveness is undeserved, free, gratuitous. Second, it's unconditional. Wait a minute. Pastor, that's not so. God doesn't forgive us unconditionally. He hasn't forgiven everybody. There are souls that are going to perish and are perishing in hell because they've not been forgiven their sins. God has punished them in his holy wrath because they would not seek repentance. There is a condition for forgiveness. I understand that. I'm not disregarding the biblical doctrine of repentance and rebuke. In Luke 17, the Lord says, if your brother sin against you and you rebuke him and he repent, forgive him. And if he does it seven times, forgive him. There are no limits to how long and how much you forgive him. If he turns, when you rebuke, he repents, you forgive. We're not eliminating the the qualification and the condition. However, when we forgive, our heart is unconditionally bent on forgiving. Our attitude is not when you deserve it, then I'll forgive. If I see evidence that you're planning to do good for me from now on, then I'll forgive. That's not the point. You had no evidence to give God when you first came to him that you were going to ever do anything good for him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as we heard last weekend from Pastor Pizzino, Christ died from the fountain of God's love. Not in order to save us from God, but God saving us in love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a disposition of God to be forgiving. There are conditions on the forgiveness, but the disposition is unconditional. Or he would never have sent his son. 
Because nobody was asking. Nobody was repentant. We were not seeking God. We were ungodly when he died for us. You're not a Christian because you sought the Lord and found him. If you're a Christian, it's because he sought you. He wasn't lost. You were. He was the one doing the searching out of a disposition of graciousness, mercy, forgiveness. Undeserved, unconditional. It's free. But it's also universal. What do I mean by that? I mean everyone in the church must forgive his brother when he sins against him. You have no right under God to be an exception to this rule. It matters not how wronged you were. For you to bear bitterness against a brother is a fundamental violation of what you call yourself. When you say I'm a Christian. Everyone must do it. It's universal. But you must do it for everyone. There are no exceptions. You don't forgive everybody but one. But pastor, you don't know what he's done to me. You don't know what she said about me. I don't care. I'm glad I don't know. I know this. If you forgive not, as Jesus said, everyone his brother, then your heavenly father will deal harshly with you in his wrath. That's what we read in Matthew 18, 35. Everyone. All Christ's brethren are your brethren, are they not? Which one of God's children are you not prepared to be disposed mercifully toward? If Christ is disposed mercifully toward them, who are you not to be? Are you God to judge your brother? Have you taken the position of deciding when and to whom you grant forgiveness? Do you sit on your throne with your arms folded? You must not. The nature of this forgiving heart is universal. But also, it's also complete. Complete forgiveness. And without this, there's no real forgiveness. You can't have any grudges. There must be real, actual cancellation of this person's debt against you permanently. Permanently. You can't bring it up again once you forgive. You can't bring it up again. Doesn't matter how big, how many, or how long that the, that the wrong has been going on, when you grant forgiveness, it's canceled. Wouldn't it be wonderful if husbands and wives acted that way? Honey, would you forgive me? I was insensitive to you yesterday. Oh, I... Three weeks later, an argument. Just like you did three weeks ago, remember? This is the way you are. You know what you did? You did not forgive. You said you did. You may have even felt emotional when you said it and been so glad for the reconciliation, but you kept it down there enough that you could retrieve it when you needed it. Just like a lure cast on a lake. Bring it back in when you want to cast it again. 
I didn't catch any fish that time. I'm reeling that thing in. I'll use it. Brethren, does, does it strike home to any other? Forgiveness is complete or it's not forgiveness. How would you like it every time you come to the throne of grace and ask for anything you need for the Lord to say, well, before you get your request out, let's list your sins from the time you were born up till now. We want to get make sure we deal honestly with you here. Is that the way God does? What does the scripture teach? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who does what? Who gives to all men liberally and upbraids not. Doesn't hold it over your head. Saying, see what I did for you? What have you ever done for me? Now I'm going to give it, but it's not from a heart that thinks you have anything coming to you. It's not the, that's not the spirit in which you get the things of God freely given. How many of you treat your children that way? I'm going to let you come to the table and have waffles, but it's not because I love you. It's not because you have anything to come to. Don't forget, even though you're coming to the table, you're having waffles. There's nothing good in you, you louse. You don't do that to your kids. Oh, there are times because they don't remember themselves their sins. They forget their wrongs. You have to remind them of what their tendencies are. That's a complete different thing. Instruction, God uses that. But your heart must be disposed completely to forgive. You are canceling your right ever again to use that against that person. And the day you do, you are saying, I did not really forgive you. Let's get that straight. <clears throat> Without complete forgiveness, there's no forgiveness at all. But in the third place, I want you to notice, having looked at the root, it's from the heart. The nature, it's free, universal, and complete. Think with me about the importance of this doctrine. How important is this that Pastor Allen is laboring on? You say, Pastor Allen, do you know of a big problem in our church in this regard? Have the elders uh, gotten together and decided we've got to preach this, this Sunday because we're eating and biting each other? No, no, I do not. I thank God I don't know of that. I do know a couple of things, though. I know the devil. And the way he works. I know the way our hearts are. And I know what it's like to live closer and closer to each other. And to spend more and more time with each other. And to get to know each other better. And I know our pride. Our self-justification tendencies and techniques. And all those things combined, brethren, uh, make it very hard to live together in any close harmony for very long without somebody getting upset with somebody else. Did you think when you got married it wasn't going to be that way? That's one of the problems you have, isn't it? It's disillusioning, isn't it? That after you're married, you're fighting with the very person you thought you loved more than anybody in the world, and then you don't even know what to do with yourself. So the society cures that problem. They offer you an alternative mate. Kick this one out and get another one. That'll solve it. There's a lot of people that have become doubly disillusioned by that process. Same thing happens. And then pride tends to say, well, the problem is that there's no good women out there. Or there are no good men out there. I've tried several, and they're all the same. I fight with all of them. Pride has that perspective. Why can't anybody get along with me? Did we just come up with this because we think there's a widespread problem? No, but we do know there's a tendency. I would be surprised if there's not a little bit of it around here. And in my experience as the pastor of this church, usually there's more of it than I think there is. 
And we never know how much God's leading us to preach things was so needed at that particular time, either to stop something that was rampant or to nip it in the bud before it went any further. And I'm telling you right now, brethren, after you've heard what you're hearing this morning, you better nip it in the bud. God doesn't take lightly those that hear his word preached for the saving of their souls who don't do anything about it right now. And that, that means at home, when you get home with your husband and wife, with your children, with your parents, with your friends, with your neighbors, with whoever else in the nursery you're upset with, it doesn't matter where it is. In the life of this church, you've got to be forgiving. And if there's any contradiction to that anywhere in your heart, it must go now. If I stop speaking right now, there will be enough from your Bible, you're without excuse. But let me tell you the importance of this subject, if you don't already know it. And the importance of it is seen in that passage in Matthew 18. And I believe it would be good for you to look at it. You remember Peter asked him, saying in verse 21, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Sounds reasonable. That wouldn't be too hard. Jesus says, I say not to you until seven times, but until 70 times seven and brethren, that doesn't mean 490. And once you get to 491, you can nail him. That means multiplied perfection till the complete end of everything. Consummated perfection, wholeness, complete. Never, you never change this perspective. Endlessly, you forgive. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king who would make a reckoning with his servants. When he had begun to reckon, one was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. A lot of money. But for as much as he had not wherewith to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and did obeisance, worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you all. There was no evidence that this guy would pay all. He wouldn't have gotten into this mess if he was a faithful debtor. And the Lord of the servant, being moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. And that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred shillings. And he laid hold on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and besought him. Notice, his fellow servant <coughs> fell down and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay that which was due. And when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were exceeding sorry. That's what happens to the church when they see one brother do another brother that way. Breaks the church's heart. And came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord called unto him and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me. Should not you also have had mercy on your fellow servants, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due. So shall also my heavenly Father do to you if you forgive not every brother, every man his brother. From your hearts. The first aspect of the importance of this subject is that failure to obey this directive means damnation. 
Pastor, that's a little severe. I tell you, I quote the Lord Jesus from the Lord's Prayer. If you will forgive not men their sins against you, neither will my heavenly Father forgive you your sins against him. You believe that? That doesn't mean exactly what that says. Yes, it does. If you will not forgive men their sins against you, neither will God the Father forgive your sins against him. That's a fairly serious matter of importance, I believe. As one old writer said, He that demands mercy and shows none ruins the bridge over which he himself is to pass. For somebody to come to you sincerely saying, I sinned, would you forgive me? And for you not to aggressively, immediately forgive is like setting a stick of dynamite and lighting it underneath the bridge over which you're about to pass. On the road to heaven. Oh, this doesn't mean you'll lose some few rewards in the tribulation or in the millennium. This means your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. That means you'll pay for them in hell. And you'll stay there till they're paid. And the Bible teaches that's eternity. From your hearts. You see what he said? You remember? See the connection? Not only forgive because you're scared you'll go to hell if you don't, but from the heart, forgive. Lovingly, gladly, freely, it's over-canceled, you're free. Unless you do all of that, God will not forgive your sins. Pastor, it's one thing for me to forgive, but how can I control my heart? I tell you, you can't. What we're saying is, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the point. That's why this evangelism that says all you do is step forward, sign a card, pray a prayer, and you're in, is unbelievably ridiculous. Unless a transformation of the heart takes place from which now you by nature love to forgive your brother. You've not been saved. You'll not be forgiven. You'll go to hell. Vital doctrine. That doesn't mean that you are forgiven on the ground of your being willing to forgive. You do not procure forgiveness for yourselves by forgiving the brother. But your forgiving of others proves that you yourselves have been forgiven. And your forgiving, your refusal to forgive your brother proves he's not your brother after all. You've not been forgiven either. If you are in a relationship to the Father of grace and mercy and forgiveness, you will forgive your brother. And when you do, you have confidence you shall be forgiven when you ask. And I tell you, it's the highest form of hypocrisy and brashness to come into the presence of God and say, please let me off the hook while you harbor resentment against somebody else. Don't you dare come to the table of the Lord tonight and take the elements that symbolize the body and blood of Christ and the washing away of your sins and right standing with God and justification by faith and adoption and the inheritance of Christ and say, thank you, Lord, for your goodness to me while you turn out and hate a brother. Don't you dare do it. You're deceiving yourself. You are deceiving yourself. You are lying to yourself. You've bought a lie. You're not saved. 
Unless you're ready to forgive. Now, you don't get me confused. Don't say, Pastor Allen, you mean if I come tonight and I've got a grudge, that proves I'm not saved? No. If you are not ready to get rid of the grudge, if you don't have a disposition that overrules that grudge, you're not saved. If you intend to continue defending yourself and justifying yourself and saying, but I could never forgive. See, you that's, don't use the word can't in the light of the Spirit of God. Don't say, I cannot forgive. That's what new birth means. It gives you the power to do what you couldn't do. You can. You will. You must. You'll love to. And I'm speaking to people who probably don't even need to hear it. Because isn't it second nature of you to forgive? Isn't it? Failure means damnation. But obedience to this directive means blessing. If you forgive men, your heavenly Father will forgive you. I don't understand that. That sounds like a work salvation, Pastor. I don't know what it means exactly, but I say it's true. And I can say this. I want to be able to go into the presence of God in prayer with a confident heart before Him so that I can know that the things I ask, I have because I ask according to His will. If we... We have confidence before Him. If we do His will, we have confidence before Him and we know that we have the petitions we ask. But you know what it's like to go to God with resentment in your heart? You can't get past the ceiling with your prayers. And if your answer to that is, oh, that's not true, Pastor. I, I don't have any problem getting through to, to God with my prayers. I've got biblical promises in mind. I've got resentment against brethren and I get through. No, you don't. You're lying. You get through to your affections and emotions and your self-deceived heart. You don't get through to God. God doesn't hear you. That's why you don't base whether you've been heard in heaven on how you feel when you finish praying. Sometimes you're heard when you feel lousy, and sometimes you ain't heard when you think it feels great. Don't fall to this, to this nonsense that says, Oh, the Lord spoke. I just The Lord came near. I know I felt Him. What does He feel like, brethren? Which one of the chill bumps are divine ones and which ones are carnal ones? You tell me. How do you know? You're not infallible. You don't know. You ground these things on biblical principle, not on emotion. You put yourself in a position of gladly, gratuitously forgiving brethren. You'll have no problem in the presence of God. You refuse to put yourself in that position. You've got an ultimate problem. Everlasting consequences. Failure means damnation. Obedience means blessing. But there's another importance of this. There are some vital ecclesiastical concerns. We've dealt with the dire everlasting consequences, but look at some vital ecclesiastic concerns. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the churches in Galatia and says, If you bite and devour each other, be sure that you're not consumed one of another. Watch out, you may eat each other up. What happens to a church when folks won't forgive each other? Well, it gets worse and worse. It spreads like cancer. Because somebody, see, when you won't forgive a brother, you always go tell another brother. And we are prone to sin against the instruction of Scripture regarding taking up an offense for a brother. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to take up an offense for another. You're not supposed to jump in here and stand along and say, I'm with him. He told me what you did. I'm with him. Brethren, I've been on the receiving end of that attitude and that practice. I won't take the time to tell you. I have been in a place where they lined up 
came to me. I didn't even know what they were talking about. Somebody had said something that I never did or said or thought. And they believed it and they had gone and collected all their friends and surrounded me. You did this. I said, I did not do that. I'm sorry. I never even thought. Yes, you did. I have it on the highest authority. Who told you? Because my brain didn't. I never thought. What you? And they, they were going to fight me and beat me up. I remember how much it made me hurt that somebody would have believed a lie. That's, I don't know why. I, to this day, I never got to the bottom of it. I lost a whole host of friends. I thought friends. Because of one guy's testimony that was not based in truth. I hope you've never been a part of anything like that against somebody. If you have, and you haven't put it right, you better go get it right. The church gets broken up when somebody refuses to, to forgive. How can a church maintain peace and unity when its members have no recourse when they fail each other? If you can't live here and be yourself and be a little bit honest before us, how do you survive in a church? I'm not talking about wearing your sins on your sleeve saying, let me be myself. I'm not talking about that garbage. I'm just talking about if you don't think there's some place for forgiveness and forbearance in the church, how can you make it? I trust there is in this place. I trust that it'll grow. How can a church have Christ's blessings when they're biting each other? How can it enjoy His presence? How can a church adorn the gospel when the church won't even do the thing the gospel does? And granting forgiveness to sinners. Will you for one little wrong that somebody has got against you. Rend the bride of Christ. Would you for one little wrong. Decide to break heart by part a unified church. You say pastor I'm keeping it to myself. Nobody knows I hate this brother. You mean the trinity is not enough to bother you. God knows. The spirit is grieved. Your prayers aren't being heard. Your life is falling apart. It's affecting everything you touch and speak to. You don't keep it to yourself. In fact, a little bird will carry the matter eventually. And if, you don't, if you're honest with yourself, you know that this kind of spirit never keeps itself, never keeps quiet. Because you're so vain and arrogant, you've got to get some collection of friends behind you to support your ungodly and unrighteous position. There's perhaps no more evidence of carnality than this unwillingness to forgive in a church. 1 Corinthians 6, do you remember it? Right after having to deal with the fornication that the church was having, allowing, and enjoying, the apostle in chapter 6 takes up another matter related. He says, why are you taking each other to court in the church and suing each other? And you're doing it before unbelieving judges. What kind of church is this? Remember what he's, one of his suggested solutions is? Why don't you suffer defrauding? Has it ever occurred to you, you've been wrong? Why don't you just let it go? Why don't you just be wrong? Ever occurred you don't have to get vengeance? You don't have to exact from your brother what he owes you? Has it ever thought, you, what so what? He wronged you. You've wronged someone sometime, Probably. If you were paying for all your debts today, you would be in the flames of the eternal pit. But not only are there ecclesiastical problems, there are serious personal complications. Now you stay with me while I complete this because this is vital. When you refuse to forgive, the least thing 
when you turn away from an effort at reconciliation for the least thing, and when I mean reconciliation, I mean forgiveness of the wrong, you set a precedent for your conscience that leads to a habit, and that leads to a lifestyle. Beware. You are not in a position to select what little things you don't have to forgive because you can keep it and control it and you won't become unmerciful. Just this one area, Lord, I can't forgive. But all the rest of it, no, no. It'll grow. It'll rot your insides. And God, if you don't turn from it, will give you over to that spirit and one day you'll be sitting in our midst a hateful, rotten, sick person. I've seen it happen. At least if you've not seen it, have enough regard for those of us that have to respect our experience to take us seriously. It increases to more ungodliness just like profane speech does. You can't be a cusser and limit your sin to that one area. When you let filth come out of your mouth, it will grow all over your body and it will come out in other places. That's why you very seldom see one immoral area and a person at a time is usually clusters. A lazy man is usually also an adulterer and a fornicator. An undisciplined person in work will also be undisciplined at the table. And you'll see the results in both cases. Somebody who's not controlling his appetites in one area usually doesn't control them in another area. You don't forgive one man, pretty soon you won't forgive any. It'll increase them to more ungodliness. That's why the apostle in First Thessalonians says to them, These very people who do not need to be told to love each other, he says, abound in love moreover to the end that the Lord may establish your hearts unblameable. It's not enough to say we already love each other. You must abound in it or you will not be established. And don't sit here this morning and say, well, I can't think of a single person that I've not forgiven. So I'm thankful he's preaching to whoever this is that has this problem. You be careful. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There is nothing more debilitating, more discouraging, more destructive than a bitter spirit. Love does not keep account of wrongs. An unforgiving spirit cannot forget them. It may, you may be able to put them out of mind for a while, but it'll be brought up. Just like old pictures from the attic, you rummage through them for the sake of reminiscing somebody's wrong. And you can't rummage through them without getting a sour spirit again. Dear brethren, when you forgive somebody, you just don't think about it again. Oh, I don't mean that your mind does not remember that it happened. That's impossible. I just mean you've so canceled it from the heart that if the devil ever brings it up and suggests that you use it, you simply say, no, that's, that's done. That's not on your account. That's not on the ledger book. Love covers a multitude of sins. If you don't do that, if you don't keep those kinds of short accounts, you will debilitate, discourage, and destroy yourself. There's nothing more destructive than a bitter spirit. It'll get down to your bones, into your marrow, and make you a sick person. I tell you, we have not scratched the surface of psychosomatic medicine. But I tell you, by God's word, there are lots of chronically sick people in this culture who are that way largely because they've not forgiven their mommies or their daddies or somebody's gross sins against them. 
You want to get colitis? There are lots of causes, I'm sure. One way is to harbor continued bitterness, and it'll rot your loins. Your digestive system is directly linked to your spirit. Bowels of mercies. Ever hear that? New Testament phrase. What about bowels of bitterness? Spiritual regularity grows out of spiritual obedience. And spiritual irregularity grows out of the other. And that's why some of you are so, may I say it, constipated in spirit. You cannot flow in your prayers. Your life is one big stopped up mess. Filled with garbage because at this point you have held a little piece of garbage in the channel. And it's made a dam there. There's nothing more ungodly or unchristlike than the refusal to be entreated, the rejection of overtures of peace, and the failure totally to forgive when appropriate. John Flavel said, By revenge you can but satisfy a lust, but by forgiveness you shall conquer a lust. By revenge you just satisfy a lust, but by forgiveness you conquer it. That brings us to some final qualifying comments and some applications. Let me ask a question. You may be asking, Pastor, do I forgive somebody when he refuses to admit that he did wrong? No. If he repent, Luke 17, you forgive him. However, even if he doesn't repent, you continue to have genuine love for him. You never delight in holding something against him. You remain forbearing, kind, gracious, hoping and praying for his humbling and his seeing his evil so you can grant him forgiveness and a clear conscience. You do not sit back and say, he hasn't asked. I don't have to forgive. You see the difference in spirit? We're not suggesting that you grant blanket pardon with no qualifications. But we are saying your spirit must be that however long he doesn't come to you, you still are ready when he does. And the moment he does, it's as though you've been waiting forever for this one thing. And you run and meet him on the road. Welcome home. That's the spirit. And in the meantime, you cover his wrong as much as you lawfully can. Don't see how, for how many people you can tell what he did to you. If he broke a law of the land, you may have to report him to the authorities. If he broke the church law, you may have to tell it to the elders. But not because you love to get him caught. Also, let me just add this to the other side of it. You who have wronged somebody and want their forgiveness, it better be genuine confession. That means you don't use the idea of forgiveness as an excuse or an incentive to mistreat someone. This is a forgiving church. They'll, They'll let me off. I've had people actually do this to us who've come and asked for things for us to do to cover their sins. And then when we said we cannot in good conscience relieve you of this particular situation without hurting you, say, I thought you were Christians. And pile the guilt chip. Some are professionals at this. But let me say, when you confess your sins, don't say, excuse me. Don't say, I didn't mean to. Don't say, I'm sorry. Or, sorry about that. 
No, that's not confession. Oh, Lord, sorry about that. You don't confess that way to God. Not if you truly confess. Not if you know the seriousness of your sin. If you agree with God about it, you don't take it lightly. Run past it. Forgive us of many sins. We've got back When you sin against a brother, don't come to him and say, uh, I'm sorry I did that. I didn't mean to. Well, then why say I'm sorry if you didn't mean to? It's an accident. You know what I say now when somebody says, I'm sorry about that? I say, well, so am I. Do you know why I do that? I want them to understand they have not come clean yet. I want them to understand that's not confession. How can I forgive what you haven't said you did wrong? No. Say, I sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? I pray you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. Don't try to make it softer than it is. Don't try to call it something other than sin and think if calling it less makes it easier. No, no. Be up front. And that's why when a church cultivates this one to another reciprocal generosity, it'll be a lot easier to come clean. That's why husbands and wives need need to develop this and prove it to each other that they really do forgive real sins. So the other spouse will not begin to curl up in a, in a corner every time he does wrong and be afraid to confess it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Is not that an incentive to confess them wholly? We need to give that to each other. Cultivate that incentive. Teach your children, brethren. Don't go over to the little brother and say, sorry, I hit you. Grab and hug. No. I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? There's a transaction that has to take place. There is reconciliation. If you stop short of that, he will not be granting thorough forgiveness. You will not have a clear conscience. And it will come back up. Take this from one that's been there. You may ask another question. Does forgiveness mean that we put out of our minds... The wrong as though it never happened. In other words, Proverbs twenty two twenty four says, With a wrathful man thou shalt not go. Do not hang around a man that's given quickly to anger. So if a man has lost his temper about 14 times and bashed me across the room, and he comes back and says, I sinned, will you forgive me? Does forgiveness in that case mean that I'm supposed to stick my chin out next time I see him and ready for him to belt me again because I don't think he might? No, it doesn't mean that. And this is a little bit of instruction to you to help your naivete, brethren. If a man is known to be a man that has a temper, you may forgive him, but you better not let him be alone with your kids. You say, well, that doesn't sound like complete forgiveness. That's why I'm trying to define it for you. It is consistent with complete forgiveness. What if your husband commits adultery against you The Bible says you have a right to divorce him, but it also says you must forgive him. How can I be forgiving and then kick him out of the house? I'll tell you how. Forgiveness is consistent with divorce. You may say, you sinned against me. I will never hate you, resent you, or hold it against you again. However, I can no longer trust you. You have broken the bonds of marriage. You've broken the pillar of the oneness of flesh. I have no choice in my heart. I cannot love you as a wife. You've robbed me of my trust. I must divorce you. You don't have to, but you can, you can separate those two. I'll give you another illustration if that one troubles you. Somebody comes to your house. Steals everything in your garage, breaks in, takes all your stuff, 
and uh, beats one of your children within an inch of his life and leaves him bloody in the floor. And you come in and find it. And the guy, if you find out, has been convicted three times for the same thing. And in our justice system, that's not unthinkable. But he comes back one day and he says, he calls you on the phone and says, I, I've come to my senses. I did wrong. Would you please forgive me? Does forgiveness mean you ask him to come over to the house that next week and babysit your kids? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. It means you're not going to hate him and look for vengeance and despise him and bring it up every time you see him. But you also protect him against the proneness of doing that again. And you protect those that you're responsible for against that kind of proven habit. You can forgive people without then granting them all the benefits and privileges that others have earned. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is granted freely. You can forgive without being able totally to trust. And you must know the distinction or you'll be very much hoodwinked by some professional confessors. And let me just drive this home to some of you that think that you treat God this way and get by with it. All you think you need to do is say, I'm sorry. Every time. And God just keeps on batting the eye. Well, I'll tell you. If you sincerely forgive, he sincerely forgets. But you better make sure you know what your own heart is doing. Lest you continue to pile guilt on yourself using little phrases that you think force God into a little box. God looks on the heart. And when he forgives from the heart, it's based on confession from the heart. Well, let me ask a question. Is there anyone in your life that has wronged you that you have not completely released from his debt against you? Anyone? Your mother? Your father? If the answer is yes, your husband, your wife, God, God's providence mess you up and you haven't forgotten. If the Lord had not done this, so-and-so wouldn't have happened. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Are you blaming your mother and father for your ongoing patterns of ungodliness? If your answer is yes, then I'll tell you that's why you've not been prospering in your faith. That's why your faith isn't going anyplace. You've built a dam to it. You cannot prosper with an unforgiving spirit. Is there anybody in, your, in this world that you hope gets what's coming to him? You just can't wait for vengeance to get him. Is it the governor? You hope they nail him. It's tempting. What are you supposed to pray for the wicked? There is a place for imprecatory prayer. But I tell you, it better be from a spirit that is thinking more of the glory and the justice of God than your own personal vengeance. And I tell you, there is a rampant spirit among evangelical, reformed Christians. If we don't be careful, we'll imbibe it. 
that are so hateful of abortionists and so angry against homosexuals and so mad at the government that their spirit is denying the very principles on which they base their agitation against the government. I despise what they do. I pray against what they do. I fight with all the lungs I have to oppose what they do. And whatever lawful ways I can stop it, I will. But I tell you this, if one of them repents tomorrow, I trust God give me the grace to be the first to run and hug his neck and say, praise God. And I pray also that I don't hope they don't forget, repent. I hope I don't ever get in my spirit the thought, well, Lord, if you forgive this man after all the murder and all the things he's done, that would... Brethren, if you have a hard time with that, then you have a hard time with your own forgiveness. We're at the root of the matter, aren't we? Isn't this the heart of the issue? As God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, such were some of you. And in many cases, if God hadn't stopped you, you would have become that or worse. Don't sneer about those perverts. You would have been one. Some of you may have been one, but you've been washed, sanctified, cleansed. Pray for those that hate you. Pray for your enemies. Pray for our sinners. And have a forgiving spirit, a readiness to forgive. So one of the root causes of an unforgiving spirit, and we pull it to a close, and you've been very patient. One of the root causes of an unforgiving spirit is an unforgiven spirit. How many times in my experience have I run into someone that had a hard time being purely merciful, just granting free forgiveness for the asking, and I found out later that that person had a very low view of himself and not much assurance that he'd been saved? The quickest way to establish an unforgiving spirit is to believe that God has not fully and completely forgiven you. And the best way to cure it is to lay claim on the promise of Christ in the cross. Perhaps you've never embraced the free pardon of your sins. Maybe that's why you're still so hateful about certain people in your past. So sheer mercy is a strange word to your ear. You mean just because he asks and I'm supposed to grant him forgiveness? Yes, yes. That's why God did. All I, what did I do? I said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he did. And I'm supposed to be like him. And I tell you, this is the point. If there's one person in your life against whom you're bitter this morning, whether they still be alive or dead, unless you repent of that and forgive them from the heart, you will perish and go to hell. That's the point. Because it's incongruous with repentance. The sound of pure mercy is strange to the ear. Or at least let's put it this way. It's incomprehensible. But to us who have received the mercies of God, it's not weird and strange. It's become our meat and drink. Every morning, I give thanks to God for his loving kindness in letting me sleep through another night and awakening me. I cannot watch a hummingbird or eat a bowl of cereal without being convicted of how good God's been to me. Opening my mouth and the saliva still flows when the food hits the tongue. That's the grace of God. 
blinking my eyes and the water. That's the grace of God. My body functions relatively soundly. That's the grace of God. But all the more than that, I come regularly to the throne of grace with fresh sin, fresh guilt. And if I could lay hold on that sin and think only on that, I would have no reason to come. I would run and hide. I would shy away from the presence of God. But because I've become accustomed to a forgiving God, to a gracious Father who is kind and tender-hearted toward me, I don't hesitate nearly the way I used to. It's become second nature with me to run to the cross when I, when I blow it because that's the place where the fountain has been opened for sin and uncleanness. And I lay before you poor sinners here. If you've never come to Christ and laid it on him and received the free pardon of your sins, you may today. There is no need for delay. There's no reason rationally for you to bear your sins out of this place. Lay them on him who died for sinners. Lay hold upon him and go free and clean. And you know what you'll find? People are going to have to go a long way to make you angry and bitter. They're really going to have to pound on you to get to you because something's going to flow in your heart called the love of God. And it'll be so shed abroad in your heart that it'll be by your natural tendency to want to forgive. I go back where I started. If you do not have generally a forgiving spirit, you are not a child of God. Repent and come to Christ. If you're a child of God, you will forgive one another as a way of life in this place. May God help us to obey his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that even though we've kept them long and it's been warm and so many distractions within and without, that you would instruct us with your word and make the issue clear to the heart. Oh, Lord, our God, forgive us for our unforgiving attitudes and change us to make us like you. Oh, our gracious Father, turn poor sinners in this place who've never known the principle of forgiveness to the Savior so that in his eyes they may see what Simon Peter saw after he had betrayed his Lord when he saw him the next time having risen from the dead his heart was cheered and liberated from his guilt Lord may you grant that to poor sinners here that they may learn what it's like to live in a life that's not pure justice but a life where mercy rejoices over wrath and triumphs over justice Oh, Lord, our God, may righteousness and peace kiss each other in the, in the hearts of this church and its guests today. <coughs> and may mercy and truth come together. In Jesus' name, amen.